We are in Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin reading there in verse 14. We're going to jump right to day 4. The other messages are up on our sermon audio website. You can get the totality of them there. Let's pick up in verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And all of God's saints said, Amen. Amen. Day four, God created the sun and the moon and the stars for His glory. For His glory, saints. Now, in my studying for this message, I looked far and wide. I read our atheist friends. I read our Big Bang cosmologist friends. I read Stephen Hawking. I read all of our creationist friends. I visited uh, ICR and AIG, uh, Institute for Creation Research and Answers in Genesis, and other creationists. There's a couple of good British creationist websites, wonderful articles written by PhDs and others in their fields, physicists and whatnot, and was trying to condense it all and, and bring truths from each article to look at these glories, the glory of God's creative act of the sun and the moon and the stars also. And then finally, I think it was on Friday, uh, as is often my custom, I went to see what Pastor John MacArthur had said, what Pastor John MacArthur had written on the topic. And his book, if you don't have it, The Battle for the Beginning, well-named, The Battle for the Beginning, excellent book. If you don't have it, you need to get it and read it. Uh, It's basically an exposition of the first chapter of Genesis, a great defense and declaration of the first chapter of Genesis. And what I found was in the battle for beginning on day four that Pastor MacArthur took basically everything that I'd studied all week and summarized it and brought it together in one concise form. So I'm going to quote largely, not from all of the other articles I read this week and some of which I printed and are sitting on my office floor, but from the battle for the beginning. And so if you say, hey, I really like those quotes, just get the book and you'll have the whole thing. I do praise God for Pastor MacArthur's ministry. There sadly are few ministries, few commentaries I could look to that really dealt with Genesis chapter 1 as the literal explanation of God's literal creation of the heavens and the earth in six literal days. And that's a tragedy. Praise God, Pastor MacArthur is consistent in receiving God's word as the literal word of God from Genesis 1, 1 to Revelation 22, the very last verse. So here we are, day four, God created the sun and the moon and the stars also. Now, I, I said that I spent some time reading Stephen Hawking. Why would I read Stephen Hawking? Because Dr. Stephen Hawking, for much of the world, not just America, for much of the world, he is the atheist foremost prophet. He is the atheist foremost prophet of physics. He is the atheist foremost prophet of Big Bang cosmology. He is the atheist foremost prophet who declares for us uh, such things in his books, A Brief History of Time, right? Think of that. 
that's an audacious book to dare write. You need to understand that. It's a bold, arrogant act to write a book called The Brief History of Time, unless you're expositing the Word of God. Another of his books, The Theory of Everything. The Theory of Everything. Stephen Hawking was, if anything, bold. Another of his books, The Universe in a Nutshell. Again, it's incredibly arrogant to think that you comprehend the universe and that you can explain it in a nutshell. And my personal favorite, The Grand Design. (laughs) The Grand Design, saints. Where do you get a design? From a designer. From the designer. From the creator. The Grand Design, indeed. Indeed. Inside your bulletin on the right-hand side, in eight font, I apologize... I apologize. The only way I could get it to fit. But I have glasses, and I see some of you do too, and you can borrow from your neighbor perhaps. But in your bulletin, I've given a word on Stephen Hawking. I wanted you to have something to take home because I want to answer the atheist foremost prophet of Big Bang cosmology. Because, saints, men and women are perishing in their sins, having trusted their prophet with their soul, having trusted his lies, a cosmos without a creator, with their eternal souls. So I want to answer him. Stephen Hawking, the world-famous theoretical physicist, said, quote, I think the universe was spontaneously created out of nothing, according to the laws of science. If you accept, as I do, that the laws of nature are fixed, then it doesn't take long to ask, what role is there for God? Now, your alarms should be going off because that's a faith statement. I think the universe was spontaneously created out of nothing is a faith statement. It's not a scientific statement. It's not a logical statement. It is pure speculative faith built upon nothing. It's a faith statement. I think the universe was spontaneously created out of nothing. And it's not only a faith statement, it defies logic. It defies logic. Because nothing comes from nothing, ever, ever. And so you must understand, when our atheistic friends like Stephen Hawking say nothing, they're lying. Because when they say nothing, they don't really mean nothing. It's a trick. Because They know as well as we know, and anyone with an inkling of logic knows, nothing is actually nothing. And nothing comes from nothing. I think the universe was spontaneously created out of nothing according to the laws of science. Where do you get laws of science without a lawgiver? Laws of science. But he doesn't stop there. If you accept, as I do, the laws of nature are fixed. Not just laws that we observe, but they're fixed. They're absolute. Where do you get these absolutes without an absolute lawgiver who first gave them and upholds these laws? Where do you get such laws without Genesis 8:22? As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. That is the foundation 
of uniformitarianism, that, that all things, that the laws that God has established will continue as they were, that tomorrow the laws of physics will be the same as they are today, that what goes up will still come down because God has made it so and sustains it as such. I comment, we need to ask our atheistic, naturalistic, materialistic, Big Bang cosmologist friends a few vital questions. What exactly do you mean by nothing? By nothing, do you mean absolutely nothing? Or do you actually mean something? And who created and fixed these laws of nature you keep talking about? You see, Hawking was an avid believer in and champion of the Big Bang Theory. He believed the universe began by exploding suddenly out of an ultra-dense singularity smaller than an atom. And that's not nothing. He believed that from this speck, that's the term they use, speck, really technical term. They believe that from this speck, sounds like Horton and the Who, right? They believe from this speck emerged all the matter, energy, and empty space that the universe would ever contain. And saints, a speck isn't nothing. A speck from which everything in the universe supposedly emerged is definitely something. He believed all that raw material that emerged from the speck of something evolved into the cosmos we perceive today by following a strict set of scientific laws. And that's not nothing either. That's a pre-existing strict set of laws. And where do you get a strict set of scientific laws from without a law giver? Stephen Hawking and the majority of secular scientists believe the laws of gravity, relativity, and quantum physics explain where the cosmos came from and all life in it. And those laws that govern the material universe aren't nothing. Clearly, recognizing that a set of invariant, universal, immaterial, strict laws to which the entire material universe is subject to demands a lawgiver, Hawking wrote this, If you like, you can say the laws are the work of God. But that is more a definition of God than a proof of His existence. In Hawking's conclusion... To the first chapter of his final book, he wrote, quote, We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that I am extremely grateful. Saints, you don't have the near-infinite design evident everywhere in our universe without the grand designer of Genesis 1. Let me humanize Stephen Hawking just a bit. It really does pain me as I consider his life and his family. Let me humanize him just a bit and then make a final important point. Hawking's research career began at the University of Cambridge in 1962 with a big bang. No, not the big bang, but a personal big bang to his life and sense of well-being. At 21 years of age, just after entering his Ph.D. program, he was diagnosed with a devastating degenerative motor neuron disease. He was told he had two years to live. Another big bang came in 1962. Hawking was told Sir Fred Hoyle, his chosen Ph.D. supervisor, had no room for him as a student. As the most famous British astrophysicist in the world at that time, Sir Hoyle 
was the much sought-after supervisor for up-and-coming physicists. Hawking simply didn't make the cut. He was assigned to work with a little-known physicist by the name of Dennis Schiama. The degenerative disease quickly weakened Hawking's body, but his mind remained sharp. Two years into his Ph.D. work, his motor skills began to fail. He had trouble walking and talking, but he was very much still alive. He defied the doctors and lived on to marry and have three children. Mr. Hawking died in 2018 at the age of 76, 54 years after the doctors said he would die. Hawking's children, Lucy, Robert, and Tim, said in a statement, quote, We are deeply saddened that our beloved father passed away today. He was a great scientist and an extraordinary man whose work and legacy will live on for many years. His courage and persistence with his brilliance and humor inspired people across the world. He once said, quote, It would not be much of a universe if it wasn't home to the people you love. We will miss him forever. Tragic. Elsewhere, Hawking had to say this about death, quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Saints, what is love in an atheistic, naturalistic, materialistic universe according to the atheist worldview? Have you thought about that? If all we are is soulless products of random chance and time, if all we are is space dust fizzing according to a strict set of laws along with the rest of the material universe, if our friends, parents, grandparents, children, and grandchildren are just cosmic computers made of space dust with no soul and no afterlife, then love in this universe is a meaningless fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. And Lucy, Robert, and Tim's statement about missing a broken-down computer forever is just a fairy story, too. If atheism, naturalism, and materialism are true, then there is nothing, there is nothing, get that. If atheism, naturalism, and materialism are true, then there is nothing. No laws, no space, no time, no matter, no life, no design, no love. Ex nihilo nihil fit. From nothing, nothing comes. The fact that you actually exist, that you're reading this right now or listening to me, and your hearts are actually full of love for your living and deceased friends and family members means atheism, naturalism, and materialism aren't true. The God and truth of Genesis 1-1 are the only explanation for the cosmos all life, and all love in it. You have no path to a material universe, to life, or love without Genesis chapter 1, saints. That's the glory of God's truth. And that's the tragedy of atheism and Stephen Hawking's life. You see, though, that even in the most ardent atheist, even in children raised by the prophet of atheism, you see that they're created in the image of God 
and they still grasp for what we have. They still know the truth. They know there is love. They know there is meaning. They've just rejected the source of love and meaning and life and existence. May God grant them repentance and faith. Faith founded on truth, not blind faith. And so here we are in day four. God created the sun and the moon and the stars also. And that's the only logical explanation for the existence of the sun and the moon and the stars, dear saints, and life on our planet and love in your heart and mine. The first point I want to address from verse 14 and following are lights in the firmament of the heavens. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. We bumped into this once before and the King James and the New King James translate this word firmament, firmament, and our atheist friends attack the word firmament because it's not an outstanding translation, frankly. A better translation would be expanse, or frankly, just sky or skies, because that's what it's talking about, quite literally. And what happened, I'll remind you, is that historically, the Latin Vulgate translated according to the cosmology that was dominant in their day, the Greek cosmology. They said there was a dome over the earth with pinpricks in it. And so they subjugated the Word of God beneath the cosmology of their day when they translated the Latin Vulgate. And that began this path toward the English term firmament, firm, the idea of a firm dome in the sky over the earth, which opened the door for the atheist to assault the Word of God. But it's not the Word of God. It's not the original language. It's poor translation ultimately, but poor translation motivated by a culture, just like the word baptism is poor translation motivated by a culture, a culture what? A culture subject to Roman Catholicism. And so when they translated, they didn't want to lose their heads or be burned at a stake. And so they didn't literally translate what it means. Baptismo means immerse. But if you say immerse when you write the King James, and the whole world is basically Roman Catholic, it's off with your head or to the stake you go because they don't immerse. They sprinkle infants and pronounce them justified, pronounce them members of the universal church of Jesus Christ. It's a heresy. And so to translate accurately, you would be going against the heresy of Rome. So they subjugated the word of God to the culture dominated by Roman Catholicism. The word of God stands true though. Baptismal means immerse, and so true baptism is immersion of believers in Jesus Christ. In Genesis, we find historically and presently, we still want to subjugate the Word of God to our culture's cosmologies instead of receiving from the Word of God what it simply says. The best rendering of that word from the original language into English is expanse or sky or the skies. We find in verse Eight of chapter 1 of Genesis, God telling us what the word firmament means. And God called the firmament heaven. And so the evening and the morning were the second day. And so the first declaration regarding the firmament, it's, it's the heaven or the heavenlies. It's not some dome in the sky. The Hebrews were not putting pen to page 
recording an errant cosmology about a hard dome over the earth and declaring, thus saith the Lord. No, God inspired Moses to put pen to page and write Genesis. And it's a declaration of God creating the heavens, creating the atmosphere of the earth that we all now enjoy here to this present day. And so lights in the firmament of the heavens are not pinpricks in a dome. They are the stars that God would string forth or strew forth in space. The sun and the moon and the stars to be exact. Secondly, secondly, we find that the Lord is going to create these lights to rule the day and to rule the night and for signs and for seasons. To rule the day and to rule the night and for signs and seasons. Years ago when I was first saved, I was in the United States Marine Corps station at Camp Pendleton and K-Wave is the dominant Christian radio station down there. And on K-Wave was Chuck Missler. And Chuck Missler is a very interesting speaker, but sometimes what he speaks is not exposition of Scripture. It's not a preaching of God's Word or declaration of God's truth, but a reading of the stars, more mystical than biblical. And so Chuck Missler, wrongly, I believe, would take a text like this and say that God has, has written the gospel in the stars. He's written truth in the stars. And then he tries to take from the stars or receive from the stars a message. And there is a message that the stars are communicating. They're communicating the omnipotence and the glory of God, our Creator. Uh, But they're not communicating the gospel. You cannot read the gospel in the stars by taking ancient pagan understandings of various star formations and tying them together in some illuminated way. That's not what this is speaking of here in Genesis 1. 14 and following, when it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. In the battle for the beginning, Pastor MacArthur has written this, The language is picturesque, quote, to rule the day and to rule the night. We're not to think that this signifies anything similar to the pagan idea that the heavenly bodies themselves were deities, We stress again that there are no such mythological or allegorical features anywhere in the Genesis account. Although it speaks of the sun ruling the day and the moon ruling the night, the imagery is not at all like that of the ancient Babylonian or Sumerian accounts of creation, where the sun and the moon were personified and made into gods or godlike beings, deities that supposedly governed the details of life on earth. The biblical account has nothing in common with such fanciful pagan notions. In fact, all such myths are expressly excluded by the Old Testament. Instead, this speaks of how the heavenly bodies govern our days, nights, months, and years, and thus they control our life patterns. The heavenly bodies are presented to us as created objects absent any personality traits and devoid of any of the trappings of deity. They rule only in a figurative sense. In other words, their light oversees the earth and governs its passage from day to day. Now let me further elucidate again and remind you again that the pagan myths that the world is full of, the pagan religions, the, the 
cosmologies that man has come up with, the explanations from where the cosmos came from, how it originated, always include the deification of the creation and never begin with an eternal creator God who is self-existent, who is pre-existent, who is dependent upon nothing. The Word of God stands unique against all so other, uh, all so-called scriptures and all so-called cosmologies. The Word of God is utterly unique. It is the revelation of the one true God, the only logical explanation for the cosmos, for life, for love, for all that we know and experience. Pastor MacArthur continues regarding the signs. Scripture gives a second reason why God created the sun and the moon and the stars. These heavenly bodies would not only mark the passing of days and nights, but they would be permanent signposts. As Genesis 1.14 says, let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. Signs, seasons, days, and years. The Hebrew word for signs is off, meaning beacons or signals. It suggests that the heavenly bodies were set in a place to serve as signs for the inhabitants of the earth. What were they signs of? Some have suggested that this could refer to navigation signs. Indeed, as noted earlier, the stars have been used as navigation beacons from time immemorial. Sailors using nothing but the stars have plotted their courses on the open seas for thousands of years. Others might imagine that this means the stars were given for astrological signs or omens of important events to come. But that is not the meaning of the text. The context of Genesis 1 makes clear what kind of signs the stars were to be. They were markers to indicate times and seasons for signs and seasons for days and for years. Again, verse 14. And in that way, they regulate our lives. They set our calendars. They determine the length of a year. They divide the year into seasons. And they mark the passage of our days and nights. You see, God ordered His universe. God ordered our solar system. God ordered our planet in order to order our lives. The seasons, the months, the days, the nights. In that sense, the whole pulse of human life is governed and regulated by the heavenly bodies. The sun determines our days, the moon determines the months, and the stars, sun, and moon all determine our seasons and years. Our whole calendar is thus determined by the stars, and even the seasonal weather patterns are determined by the sun and moon. Because the earth is tilted on its axis, the sun's rays strike different parts of the earth at different angles throughout the year. That produce that produces the seasons that are so critical for the rejuvenation of life, the growing of crops, and the flourishing of the earth. It is all in perfect balance and works to bless humanity with a variety of climates and weather patterns. The perfection with which these all operate is one of the great proofs that they were designed by wise and gracious Creator. Remember the name of Stephen Hawking's final book there, The Grand Design? Indeed, there is a grand design, saints, in the sun and the moon and the stars. Pastor MacArthur continues, The length of our days and even our sleep patterns are set in perfect harmony with the amount of time it takes the earth to complete one full rotation. Even the precise tilt of the earth's axis is vital in maintaining earth's seasons. 
Imagine how different life would be if the earth suddenly began rotating at one-third its current speed. Days would be three times longer. We would be forced to stagger our sleep so that sometimes we would sleep during sunlight hours and remain awake during long hours of darkness. The variation in daytime and nighttime temperatures would be dramatically altered. Every rhythm of our lives would be overthrown. But all life on earth is perfectly suited to a 24-hour day. And according to Scripture, that is because the same Creator who made all living things also determined and fixed the length of our days. Pastor MacArthur tells a story of Charles Boyle, the fourth Earl of Ori, who was a devoted Christian and a brilliant thinker. He was fascinated with Kepler's and Newton's discoveries about planetary motion and the intricate design of the universe. He hired a watchmaker to design a working mechanical model of the solar system that demonstrated the motion of the planets around the sun. Such a model is called an orrery after its designer. Boyle was showing the model to an atheistic scientist who was very impressed with the clockwork model. The atheist said, that's a very impressive model. Who made it for you? What do you suppose he answered? No one made it. Boyle Riley replied, it just happened. The point was clear. No one really believes such intricate design is the product of happenstance. It reflects the work of an intelligent mind, a designer, a master designer who set things in their proper place and started them in motion. In fact, there is a principle in philosophy known as the Ori Theorem which says that if the model of any system in nature requires intelligent design, the natural system itself must have required at least as much intelligence in the original design. Since the actual stars and planets and their functions are so much more infinitely grand and intricate than any clockwork model, they must have been designed by an infinitely greater mind. Scripture plainly says they are the product of the mind of God. It frankly requires a stubborn skepticism to conclude otherwise. God created the sun and the moon and the stars to precise specifications. And as we have seen, they regulate our lives in the sense that they determine the length of our days, our months, our years. They determine the seasons in a year. They mark every facet of our clocks and calendars. The stellar bodies thus determine when we eat, when we work, and when we sleep. And all of this was set in motion perfectly on day four of creation. To God be the glory, saints, to God be the glory for what He has done. Lights in the firmament of the heavens to rule the night and for signs and seasons. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, please with me. Keep your hand there in Genesis 1. But Psalm 8, verses 1 through 4 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Your name in all the earth. Looking to the heavens at night or looking to the heavens in Genesis should compel you to cry out with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, ordered, created, set in place and sustained, 
What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? When I consider the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, which you have created and you have set in place and you sustain, then I think, what am I? I am humbled. That's what the psalmist is saying. I am humbled in awe of your omnipotence and your omniscience and your glory that I see in the heavens, O Lord. The psalmist's response is the direct opposite of the response of a man who would dare write a book called The Brief History of Time, The Theory of Everything or the Universe in a Nutshell. Oh, that we would embrace the full glory of God's revelation of His creative act in Scripture and be moved to worship. You see, the danger of allowing atheistic thinking, naturalistic thinking, materialistic thinking, Big Bang cosmology thinking, evolutionary thinking into your heart and mind is you're no longer able to behold the glory of your omnipotent God, the wonders of of his knowledge. Psalm 136, please with me. Verses 1 through 9. The psalmist again moved to worship, says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule the day, for his mercy endures forever. And the moon and the stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. God set the lights in the sky to rule the day and to rule the night and for signs and seasons to set the tempo of our lives, all according to his intricate design. So we've seen the lights in the firmament of the heavens. We've seen God's glorious design in setting the lights in the sky to rule the day and rule the night and for signs and seasons, and then we see the sun, but don't look too intently lest you be blinded. Then we see the sun, saints. We see the wonder of the sun, and the sun is something indeed to ponder, and scientists have been pondering it for centuries, and their ponderings have led them to and fro, from one true statement to another true statement to statements that reflect a little more humility we just really don't know. And there are so many things we don't know about our star, our sun. There are certain things we do know, and we'll talk about some of them. But so many things we don't know. The sun, the greater light spoken of here. Read again with me in Genesis chapter 1, then in verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. I remind you, when God speaks, it is a divine decree, and it is so. Verse 16, then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, the moon. And he made the stars also. I love the addendum. We'll get to it. 
But he made the stars also. Oh, yeah, by the way, he made those stars. The sun, the greater light. Our elder brother, Pastor MacArthur, again in this book, The Battle for the Beginning, says regarding the sun, the sun is an immense ball of flame. Its diameter measures 865,000 miles, which is about 109 times the diameter of the earth. Its volume is 1.3 million times greater than that of the earth, meaning that if the sun were hollow, it would take more than a million earth-sized objects to fill it. That's pretty big. If the sun were the size of a bowling ball, the earth, by comparison, would look like a poppy seed. Most scientists believe the sun is composed of 70% hydrogen, 28% helium, 1.5% carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, and less than 0.5% of other elements. The surface temperature of the sun is estimated at about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And scientists believe the temperature at its core is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Hard to grasp such a heat. By the way, it's worth pausing to note that many scientists believe the earth and planets of our solar system were once part of the sun and were somehow spun off and sent into their orbits by some explosion on the sun or else they were formed in a collision of the sun with another heavenly body. If that were true, we might expect Earth, Mars, Venus, and Mercury to have similar compositions of elements, all similar to and derived from the sun. That makes sense. But saints, they don't. 98% of the sun is hydrogen and helium, but less than 1% of the elements on the planets are hydrogen and helium. Furthermore, the planets themselves are all different, unique in their composition. The appearance of the planets themselves confirms this. Each is distinctive with its own peculiar look and singular design. And I'll add axial tilt and rotational speeds. Uh, the sun itself, you, you've seen an ice skater they, they go around and round and, and they stop and everyone holds their breath. They're going to do something great there. And they start to spin and then they bring their arms in. What happens when they bring their arms in? They go really fast. So what should be spinning the fastest in our solar system? The sun. The sun should. But it spins the slowest. The planets are going much, much faster than the sun. And then it's tilt. The sun has its own tilt, its own axial tilt, and the planets are not aligned on the equator, if you will, of the sun according to that axial tilt, which logic would indicate they should be. And they try to say, they try to explain that by saying, well, the planets have been, you know, bashed into by other planets or passing comets or this and that, and that is an attempt to explain it. But there are problems with all of those attempts to explain it. And then you get to vast problems when you bump into Venus, Uranus, and Pluto. Do you know why? Because they're going the wrong way. They're going the wrong way. Do you remember as kids, you go to the roller rink, right? And, and you're all going the same way, you're going really fast, and then some punk, right? Some rebel kid, raise your hand if it was you, 
uh, decides he's going to go backwards, right? And, and pretty soon the, the skating, you know, supervisor, tenant, whatever, they, they have to come out and correct that. Because if, if that keeps up, what's going to happen? Chaos. People are going to fall down. Arms are going to be broken. Ambulances are going to come. The, the cry and hue will sound forth. So it must stop. Well, in this solar system, we've got these strange planets that spin the opposite direction from the rest of the planets. That is a trick, saints. The moons of various planets orbit in different directions and on different routes compared to the planet's polar bearings. All of this, all of this diversity is the fingerprint of our Creator. He created a very unique solar system in which he would create life and mankind, in which he would enter in the form of Jesus Christ, God, the eternal Son, to suffer and die on a cross to save sinners. All very uniquely designed for the glory of God, that his glory would be undeniable, that his creative act would be undeniable, that his wisdom would be self-evident as we look to the heavens. Pastor MacArthur continues, As stars go, the sun is only small to medium-sized. Astronomers classify it as a yellow dwarf. By comparison, many stars, known as supergiants, are as much as 1,000 times larger than our sun. One such supergiant star that we can observe is Betelgeuse. Its size varies because it seems to pulsate. And at times, it's at least 600 times larger than our sun. That is, again, hard to really fathom. The distance from the earth to the sun is about 93 million miles. At that distance, it takes about eight and a half minutes for the light to travel from the sun to the earth. So the light you see at the first glimpse of a 6 a.m. sunrise is the light that left the sun when it was about 5.51 a.m. at your location on the earth. The sun's brightness remains fairly constant, but occasionally eruptions flare up on its surface. Dark spots, known as sunspots, also appear at times and seem to rotate with the sun's surface. These variations are not visible to the naked eye, but they can cause dramatic weather changes and electrical storms on Earth, as well as storm-like conditions in space. Solar flares are the largest known explosions in the solar system. A single flare of typical size is equivalent to several million 100 megaton hydrogen bombs. One flare. One flare. The energy sent out from such explosions can play havoc with power systems on Earth. In 1989, a Canadian power plant was knocked out by energy from a solar flare, leaving millions of customers without power for several hours. Yet the sun maintains an amazing balance of light and energy that is perfect to sustain life on earth. If the brightness or temperature of the sun were increased or decreased by only a few percentage points either way, life as we know it would soon end on earth. So much more could be said about our amazing sun and its uniqueness and its very specific nature. And I encourage you, I encourage you, the World Wide Web is full of garbage, full of nonsense, full of speculation, full of rumor. It's also, praise God, full of good research by solid scientists who believe the Word of God and have applied their minds, filled with the Word of God, to the creation. 
And their articles are abundant and they're a rich blessing. I encourage you to go to ICR, go to AIG, Answers in Genesis, Institute for Creation Research, and other solid websites and search out those truths and buy their books and get their videos. Anything by Jason Lyle, Dr. Jason Lyle, is going to be a blessing to you. And YouTube is full of his videos as well as his books. So the sun and the moon and the stars, we've got the sun. But what about the moon? Well, let's not press on too fast. The Word of God says this in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Look there with me, please. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, Night into night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. It's rising from one end of the heaven and circuit to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat." The heavens declare the glory of God. I quote Psalm, one, or Psalm 19, 1 through 4, again and again and again when I'm preaching to a lost world that desperately need to know their Creator. I want them to behold the glory of their Creator. I love to preach Psalm 19 on a beautiful day. Some years ago, when our son Joshua was now 19, he was maybe, I don't know, three or four or five, we were in the car going somewhere, and we who live up here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Effectually, no winter as dark, right? That's just the, the dark time. And uh, sometimes it can be dark for week after week after week after week. And Joshua was young enough that it, and it had been dark long enough that when the sun finally came out and we were in the car and it was blinding, and, and I think you probably experienced this if you, you've lived here long, right? That your eyes get used to the darkness. When that sun comes out at first, it's like, wow, that hurts. Well, Josh said, oh, what is that thing? He had forgotten. <laughs> We're like, uh, that's the sun, Joshua. That's, that's the sun. Yes, it's, it's back again. Um, what is that thing? <laughs> well, that thing is cause to praise our Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. In Psalm 74, verse 12, it says, For God is my king from old. Your king is the king of the sun. Your king is the king of the cosmos. Your king is the king of everything. Psalm 74, 12, For God is my king from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents and the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood and you dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. That's our king. He's the king of everything. Everything, saints. Take note of verse 16 there in Psalm 74. You have prepared the light and the sun. The God who in the beginning said, let there be light. is the same God who created the sun and the moon and the stars. Does he need sun and moon and stars to make light? He does not. But he condescended to create them that they might set and regulate the course of our lives. So he created light, and then he created these these vessels to continue to shine forth light. But 
He needs not a ball of burning gas in the sky to make light. And when he recreates a new heavens and new earth, the light will come directly from him. He will be its light. The sun, the greater light. Next point, the moon, the lesser light. The moon, this lesser light set in the heavenly heavenly places. Now, some of the things about the moon are, are uh, interesting. One of the basic things about the moon that really stood out to me, not that I've never heard it, not that I've never known it, but to be reminded of it, and it just struck me as kind of awesome for some reason this time, and maybe it won't strike you the same. I, I don't know. I won't build it up any further lest you be underawed. The moon is about one quarter of the size of the earth. And in our experience, it's more like the size of a quarter. It is one quarter. It, it is massive, this thing called the moon out there. It is a great chunk of rock orbiting around planet Earth. And it is vital to life on Earth as God has designed it. And scientists are stymied by how we got basically this planet-sized rock to orbit around us so perfectly as to aid life instead of ruin life. Its every orbit could pull the oceans with it around the world in a great tidal wave every month. <laughs> Wouldn't that be pleasant? <laughs> like a great washing machine. <laughs> but it's set perfectly so as to be conducive to life. Again, in the battle for beginning by Pastor John MacArthur, He says this, the moon is also an immense body. Its diameter is more than one-fourth of that of the Earth, and it's larger than the planet Pluto. Its surface temperatures vary enormously compared to that of the Earth. Depending on whether it's in the sunlight or darkness, the moon's surface can be as hot as 215 degrees Fahrenheit or as cold as negative 243 degrees Fahrenheit. If you've ever spent any time in the desert, it's kind of like that, only much more extreme. And it's great, it's great being in the desert where you can burn all day and freeze all night. Have those wonderful extremes. Isn't it great? At least your sunburn feels a little better at night. The moon circles the earth like a far-off satellite in a slightly elliptical orbit that varies from 221,000 miles at its closest point to a 252,000-mile distance at its furthest point. The moon completes a full orbit around the earth every 27.3 days, traveling a distance of almost a million and a half miles each month. The same side of the moon always faces the earth. And therefore, if you stand on the moon, the earth is always at the same place in the sky. The lunar phases we see from the earth are caused by the position of the sun relative to the moon. The moon appears full when the side of the moon that faces the earth is also facing the sun. As the sun's position moves out of alignment with the earth, the amount of the moon that appears in shadow increases. The moon has virtually no atmosphere. Standing on the moon, the sky appears black, even in bright daylight. And viewing the moon through a telescope, its features may be seen from the earth with amazing clarity. The moon, like the sun, helps keep the perfect balance of the earth's life-sustaining environment. Ocean tides are caused by the moon's gravitational pull. High tides align with the moon on both sides of the earth. The earth bulges slightly toward and away from the moon. You get that? Not just the tides, the earth bulges. 
slightly towards and away from the moon. And this affects the water levels of the oceans. As the earth rotates on its axis, those bulges move across the face of the earth. That is why there are two high and low tides each day. The size of the tides varies depending on how close the moon is to the earth and where it lines up with the sun. The sun's gravity also has an effect on earth's tidal ebb and flow. These tides are vital to the balance of earth's ecosystems. Scientists have proposed a number of theories about how the moon might have been formed by natural processes. Some have suggested it split off from the earth or was violently torn from the earth by a collision with a massive body the size of Mars. Somebody's playing marbles, apparently. Some believe it was formed elsewhere in the solar system and then captured by the earth's gravitational pull. Others believe it formed along with the earth as a kind of double planet. Each of these explanations pose major problems. Think about the science behind sending a tiny satellite around the moon and and not have it just keep on going by and and, uh, head toward the sun or off into the solar system. Uh, Yeah, it's an exact science. It doesn't happen by chance. Some believe it was formed elsewhere in the solar system and captured by the Earth's gravitational pull. Others believe it was formed along with the Earth as a kind of double planet. Each of these explanations poses major problems. For example, three minerals have been discovered on the moon that are unknown on the Earth, undermining the theory that the moon and the Earth were once a single body. The dynamics of how the moon might have broken off and escaped Earth's gravitational pull are also impossible to explain by any known model. For this reason, there is no real consensus among scientists and evolutionists on the question of how the moon was formed, even though some $20 billion has been spent by modern scientists trying to answer the question of how the moon evolved. The Bible's explanation avoids all such difficulties. God simply created the moon and placed it in orbit around the earth. He did this on day four of creation work in order to order our lives. The moon, the lesser light, set around the earth in perfect orbit according to the plan of God. Again, I encourage you, go seek further understanding of the moon. There's so much more there. I just don't have the time to give you that full glory of the moon that God created for our blessing. In Psalm 104, verse 19, it says, He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness in its night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey, and they seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to do his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. He appointed the moon for seasons. Psalm 104, 19. The moon, the lesser light. Oh, how I would like to talk to you about stars. But it's just a quick addendum, right? He made the stars also. How about we save that for next time? Because there's a whole lot of stars. <laughs> and there's a whole lot more I could say about the sun and the moon and the order in which God created them. And so we'll save that for next time, and we'll have more fun on day four, part two. Day four, part two. Isn't it amazing? It took only one day for God to create it all, and I can't even talk about it all in one day. (laughs) So let's come back next week and do that together. Let's pray.